This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello all, and welcome to This Day in Most Notorious History. I'm Eric Rivenis. On occasion throughout this year, I will be sharing some stories with you that I'm hoping will be completely new to your ears. Historical accounts of mostly forgotten crimes, These won't be my regular numbered interviews, but they'll instead fall on a date that has some significance to the event in question. Some, like this episode, will be free for all who listen to Most Notorious on their favorite podcast app. Others will be available on my top two tiers to patrons on Patreon and those who subscribe to Most Notorious Plus on Apple Podcasts. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this little trip through the past. On January 23rd, 1888, a couple named Charles and Lois Hitchcock, interested in selling their Garden Grove, California fruit farm, were murdered on their property. This is that story. In 1888, Garden Grove was a small farming community not far from Santa Ana City. Although the local land speculation boom had collapsed, advertisements still touted the area, especially nearby Santa Ana Valley, and promised ample supplies of water and bumper crops of fine fruits, grain, and alfalfa for those willing to invest. But many in the area including editorialists in local Los Angeles newspapers, were concerned about the recent uptick in crime, including murder, caused, they believed, by criminals who were pouring into the state, looking to profit from the recent burst of economic growth Southern California was experiencing. And it was in Little Garden Grove, amidst the fruit trees and the sunshine, a husband and wife were brutally murdered. Here's an excerpt from an article published by the Los Angeles Evening Express that describes the couple and their lives in Garden Grove. There came to Garden Grove, a little agricultural town, Charles B. Hitchcock and his wife. They arrived there about eight years ago from Illinois. They reached the place they had selected as their permanent abiding place in affluent circumstances. Genial, yet businesslike, affable, courteous, a typical gentleman. Mr. Hitchcock made a legion of friends, not only in the flower-embowered little hamlet, 
but throughout that portion of the county. His wife was a handsome, stately, and splendidly accomplished matron, and, like her husband, made friends of all who came in contact with her. According to the Express, the Hitchcocks, upon arrival, had purchased a 20-acre fruit farm on good, fertile land. It was a big spread, with a house and barns, and they did well financially, managing to save a nice sum of money. And Charles, age 35, and wife Lois, 34, were popular, too, engaging in lots of social activities with neighbors. They were, however, by January of 1888, looking to sell their property. So as they were looking for a buyer, it just so happened that a well-dressed 23-year-old German man named Frederick Anschlag had recently arrived in Santa Ana, and he was in the market to buy property. The Los Angeles Times described him as a middle-sized man with dark brown eyes, a smooth face, and little knowledge of the English language. When Anschlag's real estate agent, Mr. W.A. Beckett, showed him the Hitchcock farm on January 10th, he immediately fell in love with the place. It was both comfortable and move-in ready, which Anschlag explained was important to him because he would soon be wed and wanted things perfect for his new bride. While checking out the property, he spent some time with the Hitchcocks, and their conversation evidently went well, because later that night, after a drive back to Santa Ana, Anschlag, comfortable with the sale price of $8,000, handed Mr. Beckett a $25 deposit to prove his interest. The next day, he told Mr. Beckett, he would sign whatever paperwork was necessary to seal the deal. However, when morning came, and then afternoon and evening, Anschlag was nowhere to be found. He had actually departed for Anaheim. Five days later, he finally returned, riding directly to the Hitchcock farm. There, without the knowledge of his real estate agent, Mr. Beckett, he told the Hitchcocks that he would definitely purchase the place. And to further demonstrate his commitment, he left them another $70. Okay, so get this. He then traveled back to Santa Ana, and on the ride there, he must have had second thoughts, because when he pulled into town, he went straight to Mr. Beckett and told him that he did not want the Hitchcock farm after all. And he also asked Beckett to start showing him more properties. So the next day, Anschlag and Beckett went out to look at a number of places, but the German was dissatisfied with them all. So on the way back to Santa Ana, he told Beckett that he would, in fact, take the Hitchcock property, and that was his final decision. Let's meet tomorrow afternoon, Anschlag told him, to finalize things. So Mr. Beckett, the next day, rode out to the Hitchcock farm to congratulate them on the news and were shocked to hear from the Hitchcocks that Anschlag had already visited them without telling him and had given them the $70. I'm sure they were all thinking at this point, uh, what's going on with this guy? So Mr. Beckett returned to Santa Ana to find Anschlag and to ask him, I assume, what the heck was going on. But to his chagrin, I'm sure, he was informed that Anschlag had departed the city, had gone back to Anaheim, and without a return date. So, he disappeared again. 
this time for over a week, until Saturday, January 21st, when he bopped into Santa Ana and informed an acquaintance that he was headed out to the Hitchcocks to buy the property. And on the way to Garden Grove, he happened to run into Charles Hitchcock on the road and told him this was it. He wanted the farm once and for all. But I'd like it if you could go get the abstract of title to the farm. Hitchcock said that would be okay. He went out to retrieve that, procure the deed, and have it notarized, while Anschlag went back to his hotel. Eventually, Hitchcock rejoined him, and then Anschlag informed Hitchcock of his bad news. He had expected money to come in, money to pay for the farm, but it hadn't yet arrived, and probably wouldn't until Monday. But if it was all right, he would like to go out to the farm with Hitchcock that night. And Hitchcock agreed that it would be okay. So the two drove to Garden Grove together, and Anschlag spent that night, all day Sunday, and Sunday night as well, as a guest of the couple. Anyway, the following day came, Monday, January 23rd. Lois Hitchcock left her husband and Anschlag back at the farm, and she went into town to meet some friends. While she was in town, she happened to run into Mr. Beckett, and he asked her if they had ever heard from Anschlag. Yes, she told him. He's at the house at this very moment, and they were all going to come together to see Beckett tomorrow. Everything would be finished tomorrow. So the morning of Tuesday, January 24th, arrived, and Beckett waited for Hitchcock and Anschlag at his offices. He was soon joined by a Mr. Sunderman, who Beckett had used as an interpreter when interacting with Anschlag. I wasn't able to find the answer, by the way, as to how the Hitchcocks had been able to communicate with Anschlag on their own. Maybe Charles Hitchcock uh, knew a bit of German. Just not sure. So Sunderman, the interpreter, told Beckett that he had seen Anschlag just a few moments ago, outside, driving Hitchcock's wagon alone. The horses were covered with foam and looked to him like they had been severely mistreated, and the wagon was splattered with mud. Anschlag was still intent on making the appointment, though. He walked into Beckett's office and sat down. Beckett, through Sunderman, asked the German where Charles Hitchcock was. I don't know somewhere. With no Charles Hitchcock available to complete the business, I guess they started making small talk, and Anschlag explained to Beckett what he was up to with Hitchcock's wagon. He said that Hitchcock had loaned it to him, and he had hired a local laborer named Anton Decker to help him with some things at the farm. This, of course, was a little suspicious. Anschlag said he didn't know where Mr. Hitchcock was, yet here he was using his wagon and horses. Beckett and Sunderman watched as Anschlag and Decker got into the wagon and drove down the street. They were later seen loading a trunk into the wagon and then driving out of Santa Ana on the road to Garden Grove. For some reason, neither Beckett nor Sunderman found Anschlag's behavior concerning enough to warrant a follow. 
So as Tuesday rolled on, no one had heard or seen from the Hitchcocks. One person who grew especially concerned was Lucia Ann Bradley, Lois Hitchcock's sick mother, who lived nearby. Her daughter had made it a habit of visiting her every day, and when she didn't show this Tuesday, Mrs. Bradley wondered why. By that evening, she visited the Anschlag's neighbors, the Hills, to ask for their help. Mr. Hill, upon hearing the news, did not hesitate. He went directly to the farm, and when he arrived, he found Anschlag and Decker working outside. He asked them where the Hitchcocks were, and Anschlag replied that they had gone into Santa Ana earlier that morning. Hill went back to the house, and he and other neighbors gathered together, discussed the odd situation, and agreed that something needed to be done. So they sent for Constable Finley. So bright and early the next morning, Constable Finley, along with Mr. Beckett, rode to the Hitchcock farm. They found Anschlag outside and demanded to know where the couple was. Anschlag was evidently quite nervous, and he told a shaky story about how he had given the Hitchcocks the money for the property the evening before and then had taken them to Santa Ana, where they caught the first train out of town. He added that they had specifically told him not to tell anyone they had left, as they had wanted their departure to be a secret from friends and family. This flimsy answer did not pass the smell test for Constable Finley. He promptly arrested both men, Decker was still there, and held them in the kitchen while a search party was organized. Soon neighbors spread across the property to look for the couple. When their search of the property proved unfruitful, they then began to extend their search outside of the farm and into the nearby roads. Eventually, one of the searchers, a man named John King, noticed some wagon tracks leading to a grove of trees not far from a neighbor's farm. In that grove was a pile of straw. King kicked at the straw and found freshly turned earth underneath. He was soon joined by others, and they began digging, uh, not for long, until they uncovered, to their dismay, the mutilated remains of Charles and Lois Hitchcock. The bodies were gently removed from their shallow, makeshift graves and transported to the undertaker shop in Santa Ana, where the coroner examined them. Both Charles and Lois had been viciously attacked. That was certainly evident. Mr. Hitchcock's skull had been crushed in, likely with an axe, the coroner guessed, while Lois Hitchcock's head had been bashed in so badly it was almost unrecognizable. The legs of each of the victims were tied together. Further examination of the wagon back at the Hitchcock farm revealed blood inside. Almost immediately, angry citizens began gathering, and talk of lynching rapidly spread through the crowds. Constable Finley gathered a posse and rode off with his prisoners to Anaheim. Still, their departure from the community did not placate the growing mob, and the Anaheim Sheriff's Department, worried about the very real possibility of lynching, smuggled the men out of the county jail where they apparently felt they could not defend them, 
and instead stashed them in the cellar of a local business. That would prove to be a smart decision, because 75 men showed up to the county jail not long after they had been moved and smashed its door down, looking to administer their vigilante justice on Decker and Anschlag. Meanwhile, authorities wasted no time in questioning the pair, but Anschlag was not admitting to anything. He assured them that he and Charles Hitchcock had amiably agreed on a price. He had handed Hitchcock the balance, and that was it. There was nothing fishy going on. It had been a pleasant, straightforward business transaction. So with this threat of mob violence hanging over the sheriff's department, no mention is made about the reasoning behind giving reporters access to Anschlag, but it happened in this case. When one of those reporters asked Anschlag to explain himself, the talkative German did not hesitate to run his mouth. He had initially waffled on buying the property, he explained, but when he finally decided he wanted it, he traveled to Anaheim to hire a ranch hand, Anton Decker. And again, his relationship with Charles Hitchcock had been peachy, perfectly copacetic. They had agreed to a price, he'd handed Hitchcock the remaining amount owed, and he had promptly received the deed in return. And despite how strange it had to have sounded, Anschlag doubled down in insisting that he had taken the Hitchcocks to the Santa Ana train depot after their transaction. But there were plenty of holes in his story. No money had been found on the couple's bodies, and no luggage had been recovered. That, that's a strange way to take a trip. And when family members, who knew the contents of Lois Hitchcock's wardrobe, went through their bedroom to look through her clothing, it was obvious to them that it was all there. She hadn't packed a single item to take a trip. The only missing clothes were the ones she was wearing. For investigators, Anschlag's motive was obvious. He wanted the farm, and he hadn't had the money to actually pay for it, so he concocted a story where he'd try to convince people that the Hitchcocks had quietly skipped town after they had been paid. And if the bodies were found, well, maybe people would think that they had been robbed and killed by someone else. But that didn't make sense either, as they were far from the train station where Anschlag said he had left them. His story was very obviously ill-conceived and chock-full of holes. But Anschlag committed to it, at least for the moment. On Saturday, January 28th, the Los Angeles Express newspaper shocked its readers with a stunning story. Fritz Anschlag had caved. Since Anschlag's arrest, crowds of people had overrun the Hitchcock farm. Many were the typical curiosity seekers who had read about the murders in the papers and wanted to see the scene of the crime for themselves. But the others went out just because they wanted to be helpful and look for evidence. And items were found in the days following Anschlag's arrest. Among the items discovered was a German newspaper with bloody fingerprints, some blood-soaked work overalls stuffed in some brush, and by the way, a local shopkeeper identified those very overalls as the ones he had sold on Schlag days earlier. And an axe and a hatchet, both smeared with blood, were also recovered. 
The Los Angeles Times dispatched their own reporters to dig up information on Anschlag, curious about his background and what had brought him to Southern California. They learned that Anschlag had first arrived in the United States from Germany in 1886 by way of New York City. It wasn't long before he had begun his journey to San Francisco, telling those he met along the way that he had a wealthy German uncle and planned to buy a farm in California. One acquaintance described him as a crank, an eccentric, who revealed little about himself. So as the evidence of his guilt mounted, a German-speaking express reporter visited him in his cell and, with permission from the sheriff, began to ask him questions. Had he committed the murders? At first, Anschlag denied slaying the Hitchcocks, voicing repulsion at even the thought of such a thing. But the reporter pressed on. You might as well tell me the truth, Anschlag. The evidence against you is overwhelming, and if you confess, your mind will be at rest. At least you will feel better. There is no use in denying it. They have found the hatchet, and your clothes, covered with blood, were found in a clump of bushes where you hid them after you hit Hitchcock and his wife on the head and killed them. Anschlag began to shake at the accusation, and when the reporter asked him again to confess his crimes, he finally broke. Yes, I killed Hitchcock and his wife, and now I do not know what will become of me. Oh my God, my God, what will be my fate? What will be my fate? The reporter was surprised by his success, but stayed composed and asked him how he committed the crime. Anschlag answered, On Monday night, they concluded to go to Santa Ana and asked me if I would drive them to that place. I consented. About five o'clock, we started for Santa Ana. Before starting, I went in the yard, procured a hatchet, and placed it in the bed of the wagon. Hitchcock drove, and his wife was seated next to him. After we had rode a little way from the farm, I picked up the hatchet and with all my force struck Hitchcock on the head, splitting it wide open, and then struck his wife in the head and jaw. The two fell and were dead in a few minutes. I grabbed the lines from the man's hands, drove a mile or so further, and stopped the team. I did not know what to do with the bodies, so I turned around, got a spade from the ranch, and then drove about three miles distant. I dug a hole, bound the hands and legs of the dead people, threw them into the hole, and covered them up with dirt, and then threw straw on the grave, so anyone passing would not notice that the ground had been newly broken. I then went to Santa Ana, where I got Decker, and then drove back home. After Anschlag finished his story, he laid down on his cot and began to cry. Once the tears dried up and he had gathered himself, he returned to the reporter. Why did you bind your victim's hands and feet together with ropes? The reporter asked. I tied their hands and feet together so they would not be so clumsy to handle. In doing so, they would not take up so much room, and it would save me trouble in digging a larger hole. Also, if the bodies should be found, people would be led to believe they were murdered at some distant point and then brought back 
and interred. Before I visited Santa Ana, after I had murdered the Hitchcocks, I went back to the farm and changed my clothing. I washed the blood off the hatchet, threw it into the wagon again, and then took my bloody clothes and hid them under a bush in the field. I did not think anyone would find them, or at least I did not think they would be looked for in a place of that kind. Anschlag then added, I never had $8,000 in my life. I killed Hitchcock and his wife to get the deed of the ranch because I wanted the property. Oh, what people will say. My poor sister, you I love so dearly. It will almost kill you. The disgrace I have caused my family in Europe is terrible. How am I going to get out of this trouble? He continued. I want a good lawyer, the best in the city. You go out and get me one, will you? I told my people at home when I started for America that I was going to make a fortune for them and would be the pride of their hearts. Now look what I have done after making such a promise. Disgrace! Disgrace! Oh my God! Help me out of this! What shall I do? What shall I do? After Anschlag had calmed down a little, he told the reporter that Anton Decker had nothing to do with the murders. And then, as the reporter was leaving the cell, the German made one final plea to him. Goodbye. Come and see me again. Get me a lawyer. Do not tell anyone that I have told you I killed the Hitchcocks. And if anybody asks you if I did it, tell them no, that I am innocent. I want a lawyer that can speak German so I can talk to him in confidence. The reporter, of course, did not keep Anschlag's confession private. Later that day, Anschlag was brought into a courtroom and charged with murder. We will be back after these brief messages. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Well, or call she, the police. Or call the police, like she should have, <laughs> exactly. What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. 
Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And we have returned. In February, his trial commenced, and his former employee, Anton Decker, was now a witness for the prosecution. While Decker had been suspected of being Anschlag's accomplice at the time of their joint arrest, now it was believed that Decker had been unaware and had simply been hired to work on the farm. Anschlag's attorney, attempting his best to save him from execution, argued that he was insane. Two events from Anschlag's past were shared with the jury, one where he had fallen from a ladder and hurt his head, and a second where he had gotten deathly ill from inhaling coal gas. Could either of these misfortunes, perhaps, have affected his brain? His judgment, his lawyers argued. But at the end, the jury was not moved, and with plenty of evidence, a self-confession, and public sentiment squarely against him, Anschlag was found guilty of murder in the first degree, and after only 16 minutes of jury deliberation, he was sentenced to death. By hanging. So Anschlag then began the wait for his date with a noose. But instead of just passively accepting his fate, he had other plans. In fact, he had been secretly loosening the mortar around the bricks that had held the bars in place on his cell window. His plan was to create a space large enough to squeeze through. He had even fashioned some sort of crude rope out of window cords and shoestrings that he hoped would hold his weight when he lowered himself down to freedom. However, it wasn't meant to be. He was caught by the jailer before he could attempt his escape, and the sheriff increased the number of guards from that point on. So with appeal efforts exhausted, his execution date was set, November 16, 1888. As October passed, Anschlag spent more time reading the Bible, visiting with a minister, and singing German hymns in his cell. Evidently, he had forgiven the express reporter for not keeping his confession a secret, and he told him that he was ready to meet his maker and answer for his terrible crimes. And he seemed to be ready to clear his conscience because he soon surprised his captors with another confession. This time it was made to his minister. He said he had not only killed the Hitchcocks, but he had committed a third murder as well, and it had happened just a few months before he had arrived in Garden Grove. Anschlag said that on September 1st, 1887, he had been out hunting with a local farmer named Julius Few, and another friend, a few miles outside of Bangor, California. He and his friend had concocted a devious plan to murder Few, believing that he had money stashed in his home. As they all walked together in an open field with their guns, looking for game, Anschlag waited for the right moment and shot Few through the back of the neck. They buried him under some plowed ground, and then went to Few's house and searched it, but did not find the money they thought was there. 
to prove that what he was saying was the God's honest truth, Anschlag drew a diagram of the crime scene and gave it to the sheriff, who sent a couple of men out to verify the story. And yes, his deputies found the body right where Anschlag had said it would be. Nothing but a skeleton left, just a little more than a year in the soil. As his execution date approached, Anschlag would make one final confession, but this time he had changed some of the details. This time he said he had sat with the Hitchcocks the night of the murders, eating supper and drinking wine with them. Anschlag said that he had, in advance, placed a hatchet near the barn door so he could get to it easily. And when Mr. Hitchcock had gone out to feed the horses and had stooped to pick up a lantern, it was then that the German had struck him on the head three times until he was dead. Anschlag said that he had then crept into the house to kill Mrs. Hitchcock. He found her standing in the kitchen, and he came up to her from behind and struck her with the hatchet on the top of her head, but it did not immediately kill her. So he landed another blow, this one knocking her down to the floor. Next, he dragged her out to the woodpile, got the axe, and hit her several more times. Once he was certain she was no longer breathing, he put some straw into the wagon, and then both bodies. He hitched up the horse and drove the wagon two or three miles until he found a piece of ground to bury the bodies in. He had forgotten the shovel, however, and had to go back to the house to get it. When he went inside, he decided first to clean up the blood in the kitchen and the barn. Once that was finished, he grabbed a new set of clothes before going back again and burying them. And then there would be no more changes to his story after that. And this final confession did match law enforcement's theory that the Hitchcocks had been murdered in their house and not in the wagon. So it sounds, right, like this is all leading to a predictable conclusion. Anschlag is hanged, the town rejoices, but there is one more little twist to this tale. On the evening of November 14th, Anschlag was waiting in his cell for what appeared to be the inevitable, his execution in two short days. After Anschlag had taken off his shoes and prepared for bed, the guard noticed something wrong with him. His hands and face were twitching. Anschlag told the guard he had a stomachache, but when the guard fetched the jailer and the jailer took a look at him, it was obvious to him that Anschlag had been poisoned. What have you taken, Fritz? asked the jailer. Anschlag said nothing. You have poisoned yourself, Fritz. Now tell me the truth. Yes, I have. Anschlag was now in terrible agony. His body spasmed uncontrollably. Then, in a too little, too late change of heart, Anschlag suddenly shouted, Send for a doctor, quick! The police surgeon soon arrived, and a couple of other doctors after him, and together they forced a rubber tube down Anschlag's throat. But, with a giant spasm, he bit through the tube. His jaws had locked, and no one could pry them open, until someone finally managed with a screwdriver to create a small opening. This allowed him to speak just a little, 
and he began begging the doctors to do something to help him breathe. When the jailer put some camphor in his nose, Anschlag managed to relax a bit. Where did you get the poison? someone asked, and Anschlag pointed to a plug of tobacco on his table. Tobacco, tobacco, he managed to say. Next, chloroform was administered to further calm his nerves, but it did nothing to make him feel better, and at half-past midnight, he died. Blood still dripping from his mouth, from the damage caused by the screwdriver, his face darkened from his inability to take a breath. An examination was done on the plug of tobacco, and it was observed that the inside had been hollowed out. That is where the strychnine had been hidden. It had been smuggled in by fellow inmates who wanted to help him cheat the hangman. However, Anschlag perhaps didn't realize the terrible pain he would suffer from the poison until it was too late, and undoubtedly it hurt far, far worse and lasted far longer than anything he would have experienced in a by-the-book hanging. After the death of Frederick Fritz Anschlag, his cell was searched, as it was believed he had been writing a final statement, but it was never found. If you'd like to visit the graves of Charles and Lois Hitchcock, you can do so at the Anaheim Cemetery in Anaheim, Orange County, California. They are buried under the same marker. This ends another episode of This Day in Most Notorious History. Until next time. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? 
On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed.